0: Hello, my name is Tracy Morgan, your host at New Books in Psychoanalysis, part of the New Books Network, and today we have back with us uh, Dr. Neil Altman um, to speak about his most recent publication, White Privilege, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, published by Rutledge, Rutledge Focus, and Neil, what is the, is it, is it 21 or 20? When, when was this book published,
1: it, it actually was available starting in September of twenty but for some reason that I can't explain to you, they put the date as 21, but it actually came out in 20. <laughs> so it's, a ne- it's
0: an even newer book than, oh, okay, that's fine. Right. It's, right. It's, it's an older, new, a very new book that's a little older. Um, okay, so um, for the listening audience, uh, just a little background um, about Neil Altman. Um, he's on the faculty at the William Allenson White Institute in New York City, an honorary member of the William Allenson White society and visiting faculty at Am let me see if Amdekar University, is that correct? Of New Delhi, India?
1: That's close um, enough.
0: Close enough? Okay. <laughs> um, he's editor emeritus and associate editor of psychoanalytic dialogues and um uh, on the editorial board or staff, sorry, of the Journal of Infant, Child, and Adolescent Psychotherapy, International Journal of Applied Psychoanalytic Studies, the Journal of Child Psycho and the Journal of Child Psychotherapy. Um, most recently, he is the author of the book we're interviewing him uh, on today, White Privilege. But he also um, we uh, interviewed. Um, we had an interview here many years ago now on uh, Neil's book, The Analyst in the Inner City: Race, Class, and Culture Through a Psychoanalytic Lens. 2010. Wow. Okay, right. that was a while ago. <laughs> so you were one. You were one of my early interviews. I, I hope I didn't do a terrible job.
1: Um, no, you did a wonderful <laughs> job, and I really. Enjoy, I still remember how wonderful that interview was. <laughs>
0: okay, I'm glad. I was like, I was just a babe in the woods. We'll see how I do today. Um, but he's also the author of a couple of other publications: psychoanalysis in. Um, excuse me, Psychoanalysis in Times of Accelerating Cultural Change, Spiritual Globalization, that's 2015, and finally, um, co-author of Relational Child Psychotherapy. So, um, without further ado, um, welcome back, uh, to the podcast. Thank you, Tracy. Yeah, really glad to have you here. Um, this is actually just to give you a little context, Neil, I just have done, I sometimes do things in threes, um, I don't know what that's all about. <laughs> but anyway, I did it recently. I've sort of been doing um, interviews with people who've written books about race. In um, the first uh, it, sort of this, you're the last in this sort of little uh, tripartite uh, series of sorts. I spoke to Sheldon George in his uh, book, Trauma and Race, uh, and uh, M. Fockery Davids, his book, Internal Racism. And then um, your book, White Privilege, caught my eye, and um, so I'm so I, glad it did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It certainly did. So, the, what can you tell us? What um, what motivated you um, to to write this book, um, if you can? Well, know your
1: motivations. A, it's a little bit hard to remember. Um, it was before race was on everybody's lips. Um, it was, I mean, I've been writing about race ever since 1993 at least when I wrote The Analyst in the Inner City um, and before then too, but that, that's getting into such ancient history that I can't tell you the details of that. I worked at Bronx Lebanon Hospital. So, you know, obviously racial differences were part of my daily clinical life there. And um, and I have a long history of uh, being uh, woke and asleep with respect to race, uh, going back to my childhood, but um, when I started to write this, it was before George Floyd was killed, and um, and so and I was I was aware of people who were trying to do educational workshops about race for white people. And it struck me from the very first time that I was aware of that, that there was a, um, how can I put it, a um, more, now, nowadays we might call it more woke than now, attitude on people who were doing that sort of thing. And it always grated against me and I couldn't quite articulate what was going on and what bothered me about it. so. I started to think about that and things very quickly fell into place. And I realized that that anybody who presents themselves as being knowledgeable about race or culture or social class, for that matter, uh, or gender or sexual orientation, anybody who, who um, presents themselves as being on top of those issues is going to do something counterproductive when it comes to educating people because inherently it's going to shame the the listeners or the students about it the second thing that fed that feeling was i wrote a book i wrote an article that was in my 2010 book called black and white thinking and in that in that chapter i talked about my own cluelessness about race in the case of, a, of some clinical work that I did with a man called Mr. A, that I called Mr. A. And there was no no way, no other way I could have written about race except to portray myself as clueless because I knew that I was clueless and that I was learning as I went and that I was making a lot of mistakes. And that that in fact is from my point of view, that was uh, part and parcel of being white. And so um, so that was already my orientation. And and so I decided to try to articulate what I thought was the flaw in approaches to educating people. Um, I'll just throw in here one other thought, which is that the whole idea of being culturally competent also graded against me because I thought the only way First of all, who is culturally competent? And the only way to be culturally competent is to acknowledge one's cultural incompetence. So the way that that works clinically is that you have to be open, truly open to hearing about when you mess up. And if you think that you know, then you're not gonna be open to hearing when you mess up. Not that any of us are, are so open, but that's the way I thought. So. So I took it from there. That's the thing that, that motivated me.
0: Uh yeah. Um I was thinking this book is a kind of um psychoanalytic companion uh to um to Robin D'Angelo's white fragility, that you kind of do something uh which I you know, which I appreciate. It's like um, I I was writing, you know, about like, I was like, yes, he's kind of saying like trying to toughen toughen white people up a little bit, kind of like a coach saying, come on, team, everyone is destructive. And when you hurt someone, if you don't, you know, actually atone, like aren't you worse for the wear or, you know, come on, you know, be an object that survives destruction. It's like, you know, you're not all bad. Um, So would I be like kind of, off? I mean, did you, I forget when that book came out, but I I thought this was like a, a deeper um, uh, well, a, a psychoanalytic um, understanding of something that D'Angelo is going after. Um, mm-hmm.
1: yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. I think that um, that she takes a more knowing position about it in general than I'm comfortable taking, and you know, I think there's there's something very constructive about what she and others who write in a similar vein do, like Ibram X. Kendi, who, who, who's, he's black, you know, so he, sp- he speaks from a different point of view about what's entailed in being an anti-racist because he he knows his experience as a black man, which, which I don't know, and Robin DiAngelo doesn't know, but Um, I think there's still something constructive about white people thinking about and writing about um, the vulnerability that comes with being white and how that can harden into defensiveness.
0: Right, and harden into um, using dehumanization um, as a as a way to shore shore oneself up, which it tends it does tend to backfire. Like if you think about people who have killed people, like in war, like they're they're usually not better off for it. Um, you know what I mean? It's like that act of destruction that can't be undone. Um, it, it usually doesn't fortify um, one's ability to to tolerate. You know the the slings and arrows of, of reality. Um,
1: yeah, that's the you know. thing that's just killing me now about what's going on in Israel and Palestine. You know, I mean it's happening everywhere around the world a lot of the time. So, you know, in a sense it doesn't make sense to single out that conflict above all the others that are always going on. But I'm aware myself of how I in various ways dissociate and don't really take in what's going there and really have no no way to imagine how I could take it in and still get up in the morning. So I think that applies not only to war but to to all forms of of dehumanization in the form of cruelty and just unthinkable ways of treating other people.
0: Um yeah, yeah, yeah. No, for, for sure. Um, and, and I think what you're saying, I think part of what you're saying in the book is, um, but you don't come out and say this, but I was like, he's saying the superego is not going to save us um, in terms of like, you know, the the trainings, the knowledge, the knowingness, the punishment, the um, the shaming. It drives, it, it does have a, um, a boomerang effect. Um, yeah. Yeah you know, when I'm it like, comes to I like these, the way you
1: put that, that the superego is not going to save us. It isn't. Yeah, I mean, so you know, true.
0: yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, mean, I just, I just finished teaching this past semester a course uh, at the Center for Modern Psychological Studies on the racism and the development of the psyche and, and the pressure, you know, you know, like when you're trying to meet the demands of the superego, you can't be creative. Like it really, you can't have creative thoughts and you can't think freely and you really you can't really think and and it was constantly like trying to work to help the students to you know say say terrible things uh, you know what you know like what I mean saying like well what racism is a form of hatred and we understand we have hateful feelings we don't hate our hateful feelings so so what if we you know sort of looked at racism as an expression of you know, on the, on the one hand, insecurity. On the other hand, um, you know, depending if you're coming from a relational or like a drive approach. But like, you know, insecurity, or you know, or the a pleasure a pleasure in hating. Um, but I, you know, he, like a human. It's a human. It's a human problem.
1: Yeah, and have. I like the way you you highlight both sides of it. That there's mm-hmm. insecurity, yes, which is what Robin DiAngelo and and me sometimes highlight but that doesn't rule out that it's also a form of of hatred and just pure destructiveness you know which we've got to acknowledge and how those two things like i've never quite thought of it that way the way you just put it that that those two things draw on each other insecurity and destructiveness draw on each other and they set up a loop between the two. I think you of say them.
0: this. I think oh. he's, I think you. This comes across in the book. I mean, it's not you know like I think that it's implicit in in what you're writing about. I mean, you you use Klein, and in, in a way that you know basically Klein says you know this this is it. We don't we don't get you know there's no like get out of hate free card you know like this is, <laughs> like. But I I wanted to ask you you know thinking about Klein and thinking about. Um, your your use of Klein to sort of at at some level like normalize in a sense like that we do terrible things and um, but you know the tricky thing I find about using Klein when thinking about uh, racism is that in um like love love guilt and reparations I think that you know one of like in reading that essay. You get to a place where she says, well, why do you make reparations? Because you have an, you have an identification.
1: Is that what she says?
0: Yes. It's, oh. I, I reread it this semester, and I was like, so how can, you know, when we're, you're using Klein, I mean, certainly, have you read Fok- uh, Fokker David's book, Internal Racism? Yet? Um.
1: I read something by him, but anyway, I'm not sure about that particular. Yeah.
0: Okay. No, no, that's it's actually, I'm doing a reading group. You can join it. We're starting for, four, for June, th- June 3rd for four meetings um, on on Fockery's, uh book. Um, but, but um, oh my goodness, now I just forgot what I was going to say. What was I saying? It's menopause. Um, no, it's about what,
1: uh, it's about what Klein oh, says. Yes. Yeah. But identification, says that- reparation comes from Identification
0: yeah that you you see some something of yourself or you see like you know the child wants to destroy the mother but the mother is also the child's world and like you know and there's an identification that allows for for reparation and i was thinking about you know white identity right and identifying as as white which is as you describe in the book not white is not black right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, that's the place where I get kind of stuck with with the with thinking about um, cross
1: racial identification.
0: Yeah, and 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 sort of Klein, because I think what you're saying with Klein is you're nor, you're sort of saying, hey, you know what? This is what we do. It's what we do with our destructiveness.
1: That but what about makes- love? Is love is love anything other than identification?
0: Uh huh. Uh huh.
1: I think it right. has to be. On, on a good day, <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, there's, there's the love, we, we, we are the same and we love so many of the same things. And then it's like one day you're like, but you're really different than me.
1: Yeah. Okay, you know. Um, but if, if you're questioning the viability of cross-racial identifications when there's such a wall put up between black and white and then it raises a question, which, which I'm not prepared to answer. I, I do think that there's love between black people and white people, as well as very, very nearly, if not totally impenetrable walls set up. And we just don't know. I mean, to bring up this question raises, the, it highlights the, the mystery of all of this. And that's a good place to be because it keeps us inquiring and thinking.
0: Yes, yes. No, I, I, I agree. It also kind of keeps us um, humble. I mean, in a, cert- in, in a good way, like humble, like I don't, you know, I, right. And it's actually, you know, knowing is, is in some senses, you know, being the one that knows is the antithesis of, of intimacy. Um, you know, um, actually, I love it. at a certain point in the book, you kind of take on um, the interpretation as shaming, I think it's from Levinson and, you know, other, other thinkers, um, which I really, uh, I I really appreciate, uh, appreciate that, but maybe in a sense, you know, like it's, with whiteness, I wonder what you think about this, I mean, this is a thought I had from reading your book, was like, you know, who, who can reveal, who can reveal a white person To a white person, now powerfully is someone black who knows them. You know what I mean in terms in terms of the our you know our unconscious you know racism, and you know it's sort of like I don't I don't want to hear that interpretation. You know, like there's a there's that that fear. Yeah, that's right. The innocence, right? The the, the, that quote he has about you know the 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 demand that we remain innocent. or the privilege of innocence um yeah yeah, yeah as long sure. as I've
1: got your ear and the ear of other people listening uh, I just want to make a pitch for James Baldwin like he's when you asked at the beginning what are the roots of my writing this it's in James Baldwin I just feel it just took scales off my eyes when I read him and I can't get enough of him and he knows something about white people maybe not everything about white people but I just, I learned so much about myself Mm -hmm. from reading Baldwin. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. Anything in particular that you you really, um, that that was sort of, uh, that particularly resonated or shed the scales?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Baldwin has a way of being very direct and confrontational and loving at the same time. And he says he writes his books about white people out of love and it's so true. I mean, I just can't it's what you said before, that that he as a black man knows white people in a way that white people up to that point had just not been prepared to know themselves.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. His uh correspondence with Norman Mailer, um, I don't know if you know it, but anyway, it's like he's so good to he's so good to that man. And you know, after he writes, Mailer writes the white Negro," and Baldwin is he is no coward. he does not mince words, but but he's also uh, he remains on the side of of being humane and And you are writing in this book really about like you know what does it take? Um, and this is something I'm thinking a lot about. Um, I think I have a quote from you here. Um, where is it um I can find it. Where the heck did it go? Just about really in short about like, you know, the the impulse to dehumanize and how to not dehumanize the one that's been dehumanizing. Right. I mean, that's a strong, a strong impulse, uh, you know, to, to, to strip, to strip away the humanity of the one who is, who has acted in a, inhumane way, I guess, which is such a, such a stupid word, inhumane, dehuman. It's like, it's like, actually that's human to debase others is a part, is a part of what, you know, part of what we do. And it's, you know, yeah, it's uh, not, not pretty, but well, let me ask you a question. This is, you know, um, uh, what, what would you say if I said that in, that, uh, in psychoanalysis over the last 40 years or so? the turn away from the death drive has allowed the field except for very recently to turn a blind eye towards racism oh i'm just the, it's just an idea i'm i'm having cuz we can talk about gender and sexuality all day long using psychoana but but it's somehow like oh we can't until more recently aside from your work and some a couple of other analysts but most analysts are like you can't use psychoanalytic thinking to think about racism that's society uh-huh. that's sociology i see and uh uh-huh. yeah I don't know but so what if what if I were to say that the turn away from the death drive hasn't hasn't helped us
1: <laughs> well I mean all all I can say to that is that it's it's intriguing to me to think about let's reimplant the death drive and then see what happens to the way we think about race yeah I think that's a really interesting question
0: that's 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 what I was trying to say to my students I was like oh, we we are we 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 need to hate and to love. So and destroy, our, not just hate. Yes. No. no we need, exactly. We need to right, to to destroy, and this is a part of what what we do, and we our life's work. And I think you get into this with like talking about. So, I am puzzled. Okay, by. The Isaiah Berlin, you and Mitchell and Greenberg. I was like, what is what are you guys doing with Isaiah Berlin? Uh-huh. It's so uh-huh. interesting to me. Can yeah. you talk about because he's, he's his thinking is very important in the argument that you're you're laying out in this book, I think for you. And I can you talk to uh-huh. us about
1: Berlin and yeah. Well, Berlin is the one. I mean, he said something very simple, which is so simple that people dismiss him. As not being profound, but what he says is that there's no such thing as having values without conflicting with some of your other values, you know. And once you say that, and he has one example that is, that's so striking to me. He says something like um, equality and I don't even remember exactly. Something like equality and democracy are. Are contradictory. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, I said it right then. So yeah, yeah no, that's him. That's his argument. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I remember times when, in my own life, I realized that was true. And and so okay, so let's, like I said before, what if we reimplant the death drive and what? So let's say that there's no such thing as having values without conflicting with others of your values. Where does that leave you? Right and um and so i think where that leaves us is that we're always juggling and doing the best we can in an imperfect imperfectly and that and that's you know that circles back to the question of how can you train people to be anti-racist you have to start out by saying being anti-racist Is going to run you up against parts of yourself that you would stand behind if confronted with those things, and so, like for example, I've been I've thought for a long time that guilt about about privilege, and you know, one of the main points of my book is that privilege is a complicated concept. But anyway. So let's say um, guilt about privilege. Why do we feel guilt? And I think it's not because we're privileged. It's because we wouldn't give up our privilege if we had the chance. And we do have the chance all the time. I can walk out the door today and do a number of things that would amount to renunciation of different forms of privilege that I have. And I will not do that. And that's what creates guilt. I mean real guilt, not guiltiness. Guiltiness, as Mitchell and Adam Phillips described it, is the pretense of guilt. When you don't face the fact that you will not do what would be necessary to to not feel guilty. That also goes along with everything else, with the inherent destructiveness of people. You can't do anything without causing some kind of harm. And so... So I forget where this started, but um, Isaiah Berlin. Isaiah Berlin. So Isaiah Berlin tells us that we're always in conflict with ourselves, mm-hmm. and so
0: right that our values are at cro- are are often, if you dig deep enough, you discover that you're you're at cross purposes with with yourself, or just like you're, you know, there's there's the unconscious conflict. And then Berlin kind of fits in like that, you know, with the level of values, it's like, you're not as monolithic as you think you are when you really start digging and uh, digging around and, you know, inside yourself. Oh God. Right. Or as virtuous. Right. It's not, not, not always about exactly. It's not, not driven by, by true virtue. Um, you know, do you know the work of um, uh, Noel uh, McAfee? Oh, I'm going to say it wrong. Jeez, and I interviewed her. Uh, Mac- McAfee, McAfee. There we go. She has a book um, called "Fear of Breakdown: Politics and Psychoanalysis." Oh, it's great. You'd you love it. So she uses she uses Winnicott, and you two sort of are covering some similar terrain. She highlights she highlights mourning, whereas I think you highlight you know sort of. Slouching toward the depressive position, if you you know when you when you can get there, um, and she um she she says something like you know when uh, when it comes to creating any kind of political change, um, we have to promote mourning and and beware of melancholia because we have to accept uh, this is a paraphrase but that in politics loss is a part of the whole process, um, and with white privilege um or with dismantling it. Much must be given up. We're talking about loss, Um, and I do know there's also that essay by Audreyn Harris on the perverse pact. I I forget the the exact title, but but she speaks about um, these uh, figures she has um, from the I'm going to say it incorrectly that I believe Indigenous people in Canada, the Haida, and she talks in this in this essay about that these artifacts should be given back and her feeling of like, I don't, I don't, but I don't, I don't want to, the difficulty of renunciation. Um, But you seem to have the idea that there's something to be gained. I think that there's something in, there's a spirit in the book that there's something to be gained in this renunciation. Um, Can you, can you talk about this?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about that a lot these days because I'm reading the Bhagavad Gita. I spent a lot of time in India. So I'm always trying to get back to the origins of that way of living. And um, I think it's in Baldwin, too. Because what Baldwin does is he shows us the price we pay for not renouncing, which is the opposite of renunciation is, is acquisitiveness, which very easily takes over your life. And so, and and it also connects with Manny Gant's idea of surrender and right. So, um, so, so Baldwin to my rational for my left brain, Baldwin makes sense of why it's, why it's beneficial to people to renounce. To surrender. I would say surrender is a much better word. Yes, you know, yes. To stop, mm-hmm. to get off the treadmill, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Why did we start talking about that?
0: Um, well, we were just talking, what did I say about renunciation? And um, you have the idea that, that there's something to be gained in, um, as you, you, you would call it, surrender, which I, I totally accept that. That seems great, a good way to put it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so that, yeah, links,
1: that links Baldwin with with um, something in Hinduism and Buddhism, mm-hmm. you know, which for me is perfect because the first half of my life was about India and the second half of my life is about Baldwin. So, you know, <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. it's, too,
1: it, it's too perfect, but well, no, I'm, I'm not going to undermine that. I think that's really what my life,
0: it's been about, uh huh. Uh-huh. Well, Baldwin is so. Um, there's a maturity to him. That's really the word that comes to mind. And it's kind of like you know, when you can be the more mature person. It, you know, it. There is a, a a nice feeling. You know what I mean. One gets. One does get something, even though there's renunciation or facing. Facing hard truths about oneself, um, you know, it's like it's kind of like, are we aren't we tired of like white people like tired of running, like 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 being on the run all the time from like yeah running scared exactly like not wanting to get caught so don't want to and hence the guiltiness you know uh, and and it's it's just such a tire it's like a tiresome operation I'm like listen you know like I, I, this is not like you know, like, like you, you actually have some part of the book, which I really identified with, which is like, you know, what does it mean to like win the game when the, when the game is rigged? You know, what is, what, I don't think that's exactly how you, but there's something about like attaining power when like, you know, it's prearranged that you're gonna, you're gonna win. Don't you always know that like you really didn't win?
1: Well, from that point of view, people probably think, I'm better than other people at figuring out how it's rigged. You know, like you might come out five five feet ahead of, of other people, but I'll come out 10 feet ahead because I have an additional insight. But uh, let me bring in one other thing, which is that, which is Toni Morrison. Toni Morrison, that's the third dimension of my life. This is, is her, is the beauty. She writes about a mother who kills her own child to protect her child from slavery. I mean, is there anything more horrific than what she writes about? And she writes about it in a beautiful way. And it, it raises the question for me of how, how do we retrieve the beauty of life in the face of so much ugliness? You know, that's what I was referring to about how do you really take in what's happening in the Gaza Strip, and walk out the door and look at the blue sky, and how do you put all that together, and well, you can't, but if you could, it it would look like Toni Morrison's writings, and I don't know what to say about beyond that. But the last, the posthumous book that just came out—I don't remember the name of it.
0: No, I don't. I don't even know. I'm I'm not even aware. I don't think I'm aware of it. Um...
1: Yeah. Well, I'll read those books that you just mentioned. And, and <laughs> if you have to read this one, we'll all benefit. But uh, yeah, you, yeah. there's a posthumous thick book that just came out, which is all about this. like, how does beauty inform honesty mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. vice versa? Mm-hmm. So anyway, I just want to make sure I got there.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. I mean, I, in, um, Sheldon George uh, has a chapter, uh, on beloved and, um, such a gorgeous, beautiful reading of of that text and of of uh, uh, Setha, uh, yeah, Setha descent, sort of a descent into a delusional world, and what it takes for her to come out of it as well, right? I mean, the second half of the novel is, you know, her daughter who uh, wants to be in touch with reality, and her mother who sees her her dead child everywhere, and what it takes for her to sort of uh, to, to move, to move out of, out of delusion. Um, anyway, it's just, yeah, that's, it's a really, it's a beautiful, um, reading. Now I wanted to, I wanted to bring our attention to something else that I think is interesting, um, in this book, um, which is, um, your, your attempt, um, to take, to trouble, um, certain words. And I had, I was, a uh, reading some Hannah Arendt, and I was like, ha- just happened to have been reading it, and I was like, oh, this is what Neil Altman is, is doing. So I want to read you this quote, and I have a question. Uh, it's from The Human Condition. Um, Power is actualized only where word and deed have not parted company, where words are not empty and deeds not brutal, where words are not used to violate and destroy, but to establish relations and create new realities. You offer us several. You take you take on several words: whiteness, privilege, power, guilt, um, and a, an attempt to investigate them. Um, why the why these words? Um, obviously, whiteness and privilege, but also power, guilt, uh, and guilt. Well, t- t- can you talk to us about what you were trying to trouble with with the investigation of of these words?
1: Yeah. Well, with. With pri- I started with privilege and and being aware that people use the word privilege as if it's just understood that it means money and power, political power. But <clears throat> once I started thinking about that, I started thinking about other words. Like we just use words without thinking without thinking what we're saying, like power, like we in, in, invade Granada, and conquer. This little island, and we and we say that that was an attempt to demonstrate U.S. power. No, it's the opposite. It demonstrates U.S. helplessness after losing the war in Vietnam. And j- so then the bully, of course, you know, the schoolyard bully, who is trying to be powerful and gets other people to buy into that, but it actually demonstrates the bully's helplessness. So we use words that actually speak to their opposite as if they didn't. And I couldn't stop seeing that in all these words that, that, that are in the constellation around race, et cetera.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Like white privilege,
0: it would, we could rename it, right? Like what, what would, you know, what would be a better white, white, uh, White anxiety, white helplessness. I mean, what,
1: like. Well, that, you know what I mean? like, there are all different aspects of it. You know, it's yeah. not, it's not like you cover the whole territory with anyway. Like now I won't say privilege without saying economic and political privilege. If that's the kind of privilege that I'm talking about, mm-hmm. but it leads to a mouthful all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Sometimes yeah. Yeah. I mean, another kind of privilege, then I have to say that.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, and I I think there's also a sense in the book that like the the privilege to be um, outside. I don't know if this is me just reading into it, but like sort of the quote unquote privilege to sort of be um, on one's own island, to be alone, the privilege to be outside of the community. Like there's a, a sense of uh, the privilege to dis the privilege to dis quote unquote disconnect. And um and I think you ask is that. Like, like, where does that lead you? You know, like, like being so, dis- being so disconnected, um, you know, what, what's the, what's the difficulty, what stands in your way of being able to tolerate being connected? <laughs> you know, um, there's, as we, as we know, like if, you know, patients who isolate themselves and, you know, don't want to be with other people, we know that they're not very strong psychically, you know, their ability to tolerate difference or, you you know, it's um, yeah. So the privilege to be a part um, and above. But then
1: that takes us back to Isaiah Berlin, right? That everything that's a privilege is also a liability, and vice versa.
0: Mm-hmm. Seen mm-hmm. from a
1: different point of view.
0: Yeah, abs- absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, so for you, like the you, you talk about liberal, uh, what do, how do you uh, liberal philosophy versus uh, liberal politics, and. Um, thought that was a helpful, uh, heartening distinction, even though I was like, yeah, where's, where is liberal philosophy when you need it? Um, but it seems to me to be sort of of, it, it, it works really well with the, you know, the sort of Kleinian idea of the depressive position. I kept thinking that, you know, that there's such a strong, I had never really put, put that together, the, that like, what does it take to, um, to like really like sort of embrace a liberal philosophy, which is to say like, I, 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 it's not, um, I'm a little, I'm a little, I'm more mixed up than I thought. (laughs) I am. I I can, I do contain multitudes and it's a little, it's a little, um,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Little messy. I was afraid when I was writing that part about liberalism, that it was like slipping out of my fingers as I was writing, like it's so out of fashion in the in the political world anyway, but just generally in the world, like people are so angry and taking, and, you know, that's needed too, because one of the things Klein says is that we need the paranoid schizoid position. Otherwise, we'd be waffling all the time, and there's no good in that. So, but at the same time, thinking about what's, what's au courant right now, it's not liberalism. But in any of its meanings and so I felt like I've got to grab it like before it disappears and I don't want to give it a push either by saying ridiculous things but it kept seeming right as I wrote about Mm -hmm. it
0: it's it's interesting, right? Because of neoliberalism, like it's just got like this yeah. really really bad rap. But you, you know, you're like the Frankfurt School of writing in German. You know, you're like we're gonna still after all this happened, I'm gonna we're gonna still write in German. And you're like after all that's gone on under the name of liberalism and neoliberalism, you're like let let's go back to what what this philosophy is. You know what I mean? Like let's uh, you're not you know you you're not willing. You're like this. It does have some value. It's um. It's very much of a piece also with like the work of somebody, maybe like Philip Bromberg, like this idea of like multiplicity. You, you talk a lot about multiplicity, um, you know, the idea of like it's not, you know, you're in different self-states, for instance, you know, and, and Berlin seems to kind of just
1: yes. know that. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, know. that's right. Bromberg says you don't make decisions, you make choices. Mm-hmm.
0: mm-hmm. That,
1: in- yeah. that incorporates Isaiah Berlin. <laughs>
0: Well, there's a long Berlin relational tradition <laughs> longer than I that I do. I didn't even put that that one together. I mean, I just it just reminded me uh, of of him. Um, you you ask a question, and I don't think that there's a a, a, sim, a simple answer. But I feel like you know grappling with um, how do you put it? The the question remains. You ask, how can one avoid dismissiveness toward people who strongly differ with respect to issues on which one has strong feelings? And I was like, do you have any hot tips? Uh, do you have any, you know, like, I mean, there's no, there's, I'm, I'm kind of kidding, but I'm like, do you have oh, well, more Lord, to say? Yeah, because it's so tempting when you're mad and yeah. you don't like what somebody's saying. It's right. Like,
1: well, I mean, one, one thing there, uh, I think the answer is in your question that you, you when let yourself be mad when you're mad and then and then take a step back and say something else but i remember when i was teaching a class once and i was saying from the point of view of so and so and it was clear that i disagreed with so and so i said and then i said from the point of view of so and so and one of the students said you don't have to you don't have to represent favorably every point of view and i felt outed by that <laughs> like oh you're right why am I amazing? why am I fav- showing this point of view favorite in a favorable light?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's that's interesting. Yeah right. Yeah yeah. And not, with it patience, well. sometimes
1: I'm uneasy because somebody is saying something that in the moment I consider deplorable, and I'm looking at them at an understand with an understanding look on my face, but I don't know what else to do. We read
0: Fockery David's book. Oh really? <laughs> okay. I'm t- I'm really he. It's 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 important because he 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 talks about this. He develops. He w- will say it's not a new idea, and it comes out of, you know, the work of Rosenfeld and Steiner. But like kind of the idea of there's an internal racist organization in the mind, and that it's a part of a, a part of the normal mind. He will say. And, um, anyway, I don't know. I just, I think, but he has got some really interesting clinical cases in there, um, that, that give you, a, that, you know, are a really, um, a really generative, uh, to grapple with. I'm hoping, I'm really hoping that the Center for Modern Psychoanalytic Studies will have him as their keynote at their next conference in the next year. Um, and so you'll have to come down from Boston because he's, he's, some, I, yeah, he's, he's, he's really a, a neat
1: guy. Um, Will you, will you leave me thirty seconds before we finish? Because I want to say something about talking with you.
0: Oh, okay, sure. I mean, I I just had one really one final question, which was: so you take us to field theory? Like we kind of we kind of go, you know, we move from sort of relational Kleinian, and then we're in field theory. And you you have something to say about field theory and um, and kind of psychoanalysis in, in the larger field. Um, and I wanted to see if you want, could say some more. Wanted to say some more, um, uh, just about your uh, about your thinking there. Like, what what uh, is it
1: about field theory? Yeah. Well, I guess I'm just really impressed with how whatever your whatever you are, whatever you're talking about shifts according to how you define the field within which you're talking or doing something. And I guess I learned that from being in psychoanalytic training and learning about family therapy at the same time. And it's like, what? Like this mother, who as an individual, looks whatever, borderline or, you know, having a lot of Kleinian destructiveness or something. And then you put her in her field and you see that, of course, I mean, she's dealing with this this husband or her mother or you know, a child who's very provocative or you got to look at both of those things. Otherwise, you know what I mean? Yeah.
0: Well, otherwise, I mean, I think it's again, back to your point about dehumanization and about like, you know, once you sort of put things like in a, in in the group, you know, you, you look at like sort of the aerial view and say like, oh, this all makes more sense. Like one, one would, go in this direction, one would have these feelings. Um, you know, people sort of come back, uh, in full. Um, so I, I think, I mean, field theory is, is, you know, su- is super, for me, it's super complicated, um, to understand. I mean, Chibiterese, Ferro, like their, their work is, um, a lot for me to take in. Don Stern is a little easier. I, I, I on, on his, his thinking about it, it's a little easier for
1: me, but, um, you find it confusing because there's so many levels of field. Yes, it's like Is
0: that right? I mean, it's yeah, it's 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 so Italian. I mean, it's so you know, Chivasarese and Ferro are so Italian, and they are so great and so you know, so kind of brilliant. But it's like it's very, um, it's it's like a a, a million a million leaves, like a you know, one of those sweets that have like all the different. Little crepes, um, or amiliefoglia in, in Italian is the word. So, you know, it's you a lot of. You to think
1: about what country am I in at the moment. Right, 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 <laughs> right. right. Okay, You've let's got turn it. the dial and let's right, right. Yeah, Oh, I'm in Italy right now. I Just see. Shift okay. the frequency. This right, is right, right. This is
0: how it works, and it's like yeah. a long, a very long. It's a very, it's a very long dinner. And uh, there's a lot of uh, multiple voices at the table, and there's there's some argument, and then everyone laughs. Um, <laughs> that's that's the field, field theory kind of can 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 bring you that like a cacophony. Oh, I mean it is it's, it's a cacophony. Um, so we're almost out of time. I mean, before you say something about me, um, is there something more you wanted to tell the listeners about? Um, any you know, about the book, about forthcoming plans? Like, what are you, are you working on another book? Uh, You know, what's, what's going on? I don't know if I'm going to work on another
1: book. Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe not. I'm not sure. I keep entertaining possibilities and failing to write them down and forgetting what they were. So (laughs) I I think that suggests I might write another book at some point. But if there's anything more I want to say, it's that are we going to stop exactly like now? No. We well, just no, passed- no, no.
0: I'm, I'm just, you know, uh, I'm obviously I'm going over time. This, I have a patient waiting outside, but uh, no. we're still talking. No, no, I don't. I do not have. I, have a, I don't have anybody till 5.15. I have a, a, a okay, supervisor.
1: So, so I'm going to say that one thing I'd like to leave the listeners with is uh, if somebody, if your patient who's of a different race or ethnicity asks you, Was that a prejudice thing you just said? Or I think that was a prejudice thing you just said. You should consider that maybe the patient's right and that it doesn't brand you that it was true in the moment. It's true about one part of yourself, but that's one of the advantages of multiplicity is that you can say yes, and you don't have to be defensive and say that's true about one part of me. You can just say, yes, let me see it from your point of view without feeling like you've become a bad person. By virtue of doing that, the fact that you're open to hearing it, in fact, is another part of you. And I think that would make this work a lot easier if we kept that in mind. So that's the one thing I would like to leave the listeners with. And about talking with you, I would say that what I find in talking with you is that you you say I I I noticed that you say in the book something then you'll say what it is and you you feedback my thought as you read about it as you read it in the book in your own words which makes me which seems in a way familiar and unfamiliar at the same time like you're. You're feeding it back to me through the lens of you, and it's different, right? And that is fantastic. That's just, that is um, another example of liberalism. That is that that every person is a different country, you know, in a, in a certain way. Like, oh, why did she use that word? And what can I learn from that? So, So that's something I really like about talking with you.
0: <laughs> well that well I'm, I'm i'm delighted because it's true i have to hold both what it is that i've read and try to represent the author but uh, you know i do like to have a conversation and say this is what i'm taking from it and um i always think when people read something that you've written uh it is it is like a you know it, it's it's kind of an interesting buffet like to hear like what they chose <laughs> from and what what stayed with them and um that's why i always ask is there something i didn't talk about you know that like i didn't f- focus on because you know s- authors really sometimes uh, sometimes i i'm capable of missing the main point you know <laughs> like i mean because of what where my interests go and and that you know i, I don't want to do that you know like that's i hope i haven't missed like the main point right i think i've I hope yeah, i've gotten well, close,
1: close enough.
0: <laughs> you know yeah yeah all right. Well, well, thank Neil, thank you so so much um for for spending time with us and um and uh and talking and um uh this is uh Tracy Morgan, your host at New Books and Psychoanalysis, part of the New Books network and I'm signing off for now. Okay. okay. Bye-bye. bye, bye.